Welcome to Flipping the Script, a podcast for women of color by women of color, helping you to not just navigate your way through change, but to embrace it. I am your host, Michelle Words. Danielle Johnson has taken the pharmaceutical and medical devices industries by storm. She has been able to thrive in an industry where you don't see many women of color. Unlike many of my guests, Danielle became an expat at an earlier age, moving to Amsterdam, the Netherlands, while in her mid-30s, and has been able to take advantage of opportunities that were not afforded to her in the United States. Danielle encourages women to step out on faith and be confident in yourself to be able to successfully compete in the global market. Let's get to it. I am not where you want to be Trying to navigate life but it's hard to see yeah. I am struggling to make a change We're coming to end now is the perfect chance With flipping the script so you'll find your way To help you embrace any trials you face With flipping the script conquer every day We're helping you find your happy place Danielle Johnson is the Vice President of Regulatory Affairs, Medical Devices for Bosch Health. In this role, Danielle leads a global medical device organization that supports strategic priorities domestically and internationally, representing Bosch Health in various internal and external forums with regulatory bodies, health authorities, and trade associations. Prior to Bosch, Danielle was the Senior Director of Regulatory Affairs for Europe, Middle East, Africa, and Canada at Johnson & Johnson. In this role, she was responsible for leading a team of approximately 70 people to ensure compliant and on-time launches of new products, life cycle management, business transformation, and policy shaping to drive regulatory harmonization. Prior to J&J, Danielle held several global roles with increasing responsibility at major medical device companies, such as Philips, Abbott Vascular, and Medtronic. Danielle's career has spanned several countries, including the U.S., Japan, and the Netherlands, where she currently lives and has lived since 2014. Danielle is a native of Louisiana. Welcome to Flipping the Script, Danielle. Thank you for having me. How are you? I am doing great. Your background is really interesting and unique because the strong science education and background that you have, it is not often that we see Black women in STEM, particularly to have reached the level that you have. So when did your interest of the sciences begin and what sparked that interest? My first love was actually dance and not science. Um, I I did ballet for a very long time. My grandmother, who went to Xavier University and got a degree in chemistry, that kind of helped to spark my interest in science. Math always came easy to me. And so when my mom said that dance wasn't a real major and I couldn't go to college to major in dance, uh, chemistry was the next best thing. It was kind of like my second love, right? Math came easy and I liked I liked watching reactions. I like to tell people I like to blow shit up. 
it just was easy for me to decide to major in chemistry. That's funny that you say that because when I graduated from high school, I wanted to go into fashion merchandising and go to the Fashion Institute in Long Beach. And my mother said, no, you're going to major in business and get a four-year degree. So same thing. They shut down our dreams, don't they? (laughs) Well, and I think I'm a third-generation college-educated Black woman, which I always say I didn't realize that that was a unicorn until I actually went to a historically Black college and met other people that were like, well, I'm first-generation college-educated. For me, it was never a if you're going to college. It was just where you want to go to college, right? My grandmother went to Xavier, my mom went to Dillard, um, and I chose Howard. So, you know, I'm third generation, historically black college, female educated. And that's a big deal for me. And so, you know, both my mom and my grandma, who both have passed away, are two major influences in my life. You know, I saw the hard work that they put in, even after having college degrees, but being females and, and all the hard work that they had to still put in and all the obstacles they had to overcome you know, to do the things that they did. So, you know, I took their advice seriously. Plus they were helping to pay. So <laughs> not like I really you know, have it is a unicorn. That is a unicorn. Was your mom in the sciences also? My mom majored in social work in undergrad and got a master's in psychology. Okay. So what was your major in undergrad? Chemistry. I you majored in chemistry, chemistry, just like my grandmother. So academically, what was your path? So originally it was med school. It was med school until it wasn't. And then I went to the University of Southern California after. So I did a a year of research in undergrad at USC, which was a really amazing experience. And I connected with really amazing researchers. So I left Howard in 2000 because there was a program that Howard had with USC. And USC was working on some amazing research on Parkinson's disease that I was interested in at the time because I had never known anyone to have Parkinson's. And I had a friend, a young friend who was struggling with it. And I was, I I wanted to learn more about it. I thought I I could be able to help her. Right. Um, And so I did a year of research at USC and I I worked under some amazing professors. And so it drew me back to USC. So I ended up going back to the University of Southern California to get a PhD in microbiology. So I studied microbiology um, at USC in grad school uh, after leaving Howard. So, and then from there, I, I couldn't get a job. You know, pharma companies, when I came out of school, pharma companies were on the downturn, but device companies were on the upturn. So a friend introduced me to someone at Medtronic. I didn't even know who they were. I didn't know what Medtronic was. They're known for inventing the pacemaker, right? And I started my career at Medtronic. did a a rotation program and I worked in uh, clinical services. Then I worked in regulatory affairs. So it was through a, you know, coincidence really that I got into medical devices. So that's then where you found your home is in regulatory affairs from there? Or did you bounce around to other departments with the other companies that you worked for? No. So I've been in regulatory affairs for a long time now. And it was, once again, a series of coincidences and the right people coming into my life at the right time. So I had been in Medtronic for maybe a year and a half. And my mom had just passed away and I didn't know what I wanted to do with myself. Medtronic has an African-American employee resource group, and they had a mentoring program. And I got paired with the head of regulatory affairs for the pacemaker division. And she said to me, with your mouth and your brain, you are in the wrong role. You really should be in regulatory affairs. Once again, I had no idea what regulatory affairs was. So I went home to my trusty friend, Google, because I was too embarrassed to ask her, what do you (laughs) even do in regulatory? And I Googled regulatory 
And this certificate program came up at Northeastern University in, in Boston. And it was online and it was accredited. And so Medtronic would pay for it as long as I got a C or better. So I took this certificate program and it was interesting. It was like basically a mixture of science and law, which was also interesting because a lot of people always thought that I was going to be a lawyer. And so that was, it just was very interesting to me. And so that's how I kind of got in the regulatory path. Medtronic had a new business in California that needed a regulatory person. They offered me a role and I moved to California from Minnesota. Okay. Because yes, a lot of uh, regulatory people are lawyers. So that is what I've seen often as well. So yeah. So tell me, Danielle, then how did you end up moving abroad? How did that come about in your career? So interesting enough, in 2013, I had a pulmonary embolism and I almost died. I love what I do, but in the U.S. I was just working so much. I was 33 I think at the time, and and I just wanted a change. I wanted to do something different. And someone reached out to me about an opportunity at Phillips. And I was like, "Mm, Amsterdam's not on my list. I was actually looking at the UK. I'd always been fascinated with the UK. I had interviewed for a job in Cambridge at a startup, and they were in the process of making me an offer when someone just reached out to me again. And I will say I got the bug in 2009, probably initially. At Medtronic, I got to work on an international project in Tokyo in 2009 and where I was going back and forth to Tokyo. And then I finally just moved to Tokyo for a couple months to work on this project. And and it was just one of those things that I enjoyed it. It was a great experience to be be and learn another culture, I think. I had never, while my dad was in the military and traveled the world, I had never really spent extensive amounts of time outside the U.S., Right. I had gone to France and Italy and a couple other places, but I'd never spent and I'd never been to Asia. So, you know, Tokyo mm-hmm. was my first trip into Asia and being there and, and, and experiencing the culture and and having to struggle through because I didn't speak the language. It just felt amazing. I enjoyed it. Right. It was a new experience. I felt like I was coming into my own. So in 2013, when I got sick and I just felt like I was getting given another, let's say, chance at life. I mean, I wanted to do mm-hmm. something different. I felt like I was stuck in a rut living in the Bay Area from a social perspective. From a career perspective, I felt like my career was going great, but I felt like I was giving too much of myself to my career and not enough to myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so when the opportunity came up, you know, when they first called me about Amsterdam and I was like, Amsterdam, it wasn't even on one of my places to visit. I was like, sex and drugs. Why would I want to go there? <laughs> so it's just so funny how like the stigmatism of what you hear and see in the media and in the news is not really what a place is like. So the person that reached out to me said, look, just interview with the president of this business. I think you'll like them. So I did a Skype interview from my home in San Francisco. And it was, I I liked it. Like I liked the guy. I, I liked the vision. It was a new business they were building. It was an opportunity for me to build something from the ground up. I'd always worked in organizations that were well established. And while Phillips is a well established company, this group was brand new and they needed to do things different from the traditional Phillips businesses. So it was a real opportunity for me to work and build something. 
So they flew me to Amsterdam that following weekend, and I got to experience Amsterdam for the weekend. And then that Monday, they had a driver come pick me up and take me down to a city in the Netherlands called Eindhoven. And now let me tell you, I couldn't even pronounce the name of the city. I kept calling it Eindhoven. And that's where Phillips was born. So Phillips was birthed in a city called Eindhoven, which is about two hours south of Amsterdam. And they have their big Phillips research facility in Eindhoven. And then they have their huge R&D campus in a city right next door called Best. Um, so I spent two days down there interviewing. And then on Wednesday, I flew back to San Francisco. By the time I landed in San Francisco, I had a job offer on the phone. And that was the end. That was actually around this time in 2013, because it was October 2013. I then applied for my visa in November. I remember like it was yesterday, like the week before Thanksgiving, I applied for my visa. And they said it would take three to six months for a visa for to clear for mm. me to work. Well, I don't know if God was like, no, you need to move now. My visa actually cleared on Christmas Eve. The relocation company that handles the visas called me on Christmas Eve. I was in New Orleans cooking and they called me and said, your visa is cleared. You can start work on January 1st. I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Is this really happening? <laughs> I'm like, wow. I haven't even quit my current job. I haven't packed anything. I don't even know where I'm going to live. <laughs> so they, they pushed the start date back to February. So I actually arrived in Amsterdam on January 28th. 2014. So this year will be eight years. So I arrived in Amsterdam January 28, 2014. I started work on February 2nd. You know, like you know, um, in Europe, we get paid once a month. So they like you to start at the beginning of the month. So it's a full cycle. Right. Um, so yeah, mm -hmm. I packed stuff, like two suitcases, actually. I just packed two suitcases and came here. And then I went back, you know, to San Francisco and packed up and you know, eventually moved because I actually didn't even find a house till July. So I was in corporate housing from February to August because I found a house in July and I moved in in August. So August 2014, that's actually when I first moved abroad to Qatar. Yep. So, yes, yeah, so I had been here August for months, but I didn't actually move into yeah. my house. I and mean, you've been in my house. So I'm like, I've been in the same house because people see it on House Hunters International. Like, is that really your house? I'm like, yes, it is really my house. And it's a funny story yeah. <laughs> because I credit house owners for me finding this house. I actually forgot to even add that into my questioning about you being on House Hunters. <laughs> so I'm glad you mentioned yeah, that. Yeah, so it, it's yes, so funny because I, I didn't know how house hunters work, but the house hunting experience here was weird, right? Realtors are what they, they call them Maclars in Dutch. They only work Monday through Friday, eight to five. So I'm like, well, wait a minute. How am I going to find a house? I got to work Monday through Friday, eight to five. Well, I took right. a few days off, you know, from work to go see places, but it was like, it was shock to me, right? I mean, there was places that you had to plug in the stove when you wanted to use it. A lot of places didn't have an oven. One place, the hot water heater was in the bathroom. It was exposed near the shower. Like, it was just, like, some of the bedrooms were small. I was like, what is this? There's no real closets. Like, you got to buy wardrobes. I was like, in the U.S., you can't even call it a bedroom if it doesn't have a closet. Right. Right. Yeah. You find out when you move abroad, that is not standard. It is not. Just like I just thought that having an, like an oven was Europe. standard. And that's just not standard. People have what they call this thing called a combi. It's basically like a high powered microwave. And I love to cook. So I was like, I need a proper kitchen. I want a gas burning stove and I want a proper oven so I can roast a turkey <laughs> or something yeah. like that. So I just was on social media and saying, you know, like chronicling some of these things, like literally this man took me to see a place. I'm five foot one. This man took me to see a place where the bedroom was upstairs. It's kind of like a loft. I couldn't even fully stand up. 
in the bedroom. <laughs> I was like, so I would have really had a problem. I was like, if I ever got a partner, <laughs> we would never be able to live here. Like, this is crazy. I was just chronicling it on social media. Everybody's like, you should start a blog. And I was like, I don't have time to start a blog. I'm starting a new job. I'm in a new country. I'm trying to find a house. Who has time to start a blog? So I was just like chronicling like all of these house hunting mishaps on social media. And I just started tagging House Hunters International. Well, then they reached out to me on social media. And that's how I ended up getting on the show. Well, what I did know is they don't actually help you find a house. House Hunters is a reenactment of you finding your house. But they cast me on a Friday to be in the show. I broke my leg on Saturday in a kickboxing accident. And I saw this place on Monday. Well, you know what? You need to send me the link to your episode again because it's been so long since I've seen it. I want to watch it again. Yep. But so how did they help you to get your place then? So they didn't. I'm just saying they were my good luck charm because I was talking. I was exhausted. Oh, okay. I was exhausted looking at houses. And I feel like like when once they cast me on the show, they were like, well, let us know when you find a house. And then like literally my friend Amy took me to kickboxing, broke my leg in kickboxing. And then when I came here, you've been in my house. I'm all the way at the top. So I had already had this appointment scheduled to see this place on Monday, but I had a cast on my leg. So when I got here, I was like, there's just no way I'm going to make it up all those steps. You know what? This is like house number 100. It's probably going to be crappy anyway. This really isn't my desired neighborhood. It's too busy. I had all these excuses why I wasn't going to even come up even after I was here. So my Mm -hmm. friend Amy had come with me. So she was like, look, we're already here. I'm going to go up and see the place. If I think it's worth it, I'm going to help carry you up these steps so you can see this place. <laughs> so she comes back downstairs and she was like, girl, if you don't get up here to see this place, I'm going to tell the people you're taking it anyway. So literally she holds my crutches and I scoot it on my butt up all these steps. And I came in and I was like, oh my God, the beautiful canal view. You know, it was exactly my size. It was, it had a nice kitchen. It was everything I needed in a place. I tell you guys, I've seen Danielle's place. I've stayed with her a couple of times and I love her apartment. So it is. It's very nice. But I have to tell you, those stairs she have are a problem. And I am not a light traveler, which is an even bigger problem because I usually have a big, heavy suitcase. And how many, what floor are you I'm on? I'm on four. That's what I thought. I was trying like, is it the fourth floor? The fourth floor and the stairs are really narrow and really steep. Yes, yes. And so it's almost like trying to carry your luggage up a ladder. <laughs> it is. Which is why I, for, I forewarn people every time they come. Because I also do not believe in helping people with their bags. Because I don't carry my own bags up and down the steps. I use a car service every time I travel for work. I use a car service. And they send someone to get the bags. And when they pick me up from the airport, they bring the bags back up. It is. It's a nightmare. Just that that portion of it. You know, luckily, when I get to the fourth floor to her apartment, it is nice and it's rewarding. <laughs> but getting up and down, I'm like, man, why did I bring such a big bag? Well, that's another funny <laughs> thing, too, because that was something I was like, well, wait a minute. How am I going to get all my stuff in here? That was another interesting thing. Like in the, in the Netherlands, they bring things through the window. Well, right. nothing of mine came up the steps. Everything came through the windows. The windows open like doors and there's a bar that they take off. And there were like, there's these pulleys on the outside of the building where they literally hook things up and pull. Now my relocation company was a little bit more fancier. So they have these outdoor electric elevators. 
So everything went in this outdoor electric oh. elevator out right outside the window in oh. front of my unit. So everything that came into this house came through my two bedrooms, the guest room and my room, because they faced up the street. Right. And so everything that's in here came through the windows. That's interesting. I well, I knew that they came through the windows. I didn't know that they had the elevator set up. So that's nice. Yeah. So they do have the <laughs> elevator set up so they can use a pulley. Or they can have the elevator. And so they, basically, if you ever see a moving truck around here, you'll see like a little thing attached to the back of it. And it's literally like an electric elevator. And they set it up and they, they load okay. it and they lift. lift it up from outside. Perfect. That's good thinking. You know, Danielle, for one thing, I want to commend you because my podcast and myself as well talk to a lot of women that are older that don't flip their script until their 40s. And so you realized that you wanted to do something differently younger, you know, and in your 30s even, making that decision and making that change at an earlier age. So I have to commend you on that. But then also, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the podcast as well is because even now you're continuing to flip your script, even though you've already moved abroad. So, you know, I announced at the beginning of the podcast that you're now vice president, which is a new position for you. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, it's a week old. <laughs> it's about a week old. Yes. Um, but you have been able to successfully elevate even while you've been abroad, even though you, of course, have flipped your script and moved abroad, you're continuing to evolve and develop and so I wanted to ask you about that progress that you've made, because you left your previous company about a year ago. So this is a new company even for you. And now you've had this big promotion. Yeah. So how would you say that living abroad may have been able to better help you facilitate your growth? Or do you think it has sped it up, slowed it down? How has that impacted your career? A couple of things. So it's been actually almost two years. So I left J&J March of 2020. I actually resigned in December because, as you know, abroad, especially given the roles that I have, you have to give three months notice, not two weeks, because right. we work on contracts. I think a lot of people don't realize that. They're like, oh, you're a contractor. No, I'm a full-time employee. But in Europe, your rules of employment are dictated by an employee-employer contract. So my contract yes. dictated that I had to give three months notice, or technically they could have come after me for cash, right? So when I made the decision that I wanted to leave Johnson & Johnson, I actually resigned in December. And I resigned because my plan was, was that I was going to take some time off. Like I didn't resign for another job. July of 2019, I had just turned 40. I'm single. And I had decided I was going to have a baby on my own. So I resigned. I went through IVF in January and then uh, it was unsuccessful. I went back to work in February. It was my last month. And then I was just going to travel. I have friends in Ghana. I wanted to go to the Seychelles. I wanted to go to Bali. But then lockdown hit because of the pandemic. Right. So I I felt like that was God telling me, you know what, you've been working a lot lately because my role at J&J was probably about 90 percent travel. Right. Meeting with ministries of health from all over the world. And I think so that takes me to how I believe I've been able to continue to elevate while living abroad is that I work for mostly large corporations and most of them are American based. Philips is a Dutch company. They were the first company I ever worked for that was not U.S. Based, they weren't. They're not a U.S. homegrown company. Getting to see and appreciate other cultures and how they handle business, and also being able to be that conduit, that middle person uh, for your company between, let's say, regulations in Saudi Arabia to the expectations of R and D in the U.S. 
and being able to do that eloquently is how my career has continued to evolve. I don't go into places thinking like, well, um, the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration in the U.S. is the end all be all. And you need to follow what the FDA is saying or you're not going to have our products. Mm -hmm. I don't take that approach. I take the approach of more so wanting to understand why they want something different. Is there a different problem that they're trying to solve? Is there a different public health crisis that they see in their patient populations around the world, right? And then I try to do a bridge. So I try to become that bridge between what they need and want and what I know my company can deliver on in the most economical fashion. Because like I tell people, people always talk about why these drugs are so expensive and these companies are making all this money, but research and development is expensive. And companies have to try to recoup that R- those R&D costs. And the more divergence that we have in regulations, the higher the cost is. And that cost gets passed on to someone and ultimately it's the end consumer. So, you know, it's my job to try to bring products to market safely, effectively and efficiently while thinking about the R&D timelines and the R&D costs. You know, I actually just had this topic with my students last week because we've been talking about intellectual property. Yep. So patent protection. And I told them, you know, one of the reasons why companies have the patent protection is so that they can recover all of the R&D costs for coming up with these new products, because otherwise you would have no incentive. You know, if other companies were able to come in and reproduce, you know, your product and you don't have the patent protection, then you wouldn't be able to recover your costs and it would really decrease innovation. Yeah. And like I tell people, I mean, let's be clear. I love what I do. I do. I love what I do. And that's why I do what I do because I love it. But I don't know how many of us would still be working if we weren't getting a paycheck. So I say that like people say like all these pharma companies, they're just after money. Well, their bottom line is to make a profit, but they're not out here just making these ridiculous profits while not making sure their innovation is there. A lot of the money that a lot of these companies make go back into reinvesting in the innovation. And it's expensive. I mean, if I can show you my R&D budget for next year, you'd laugh at how expensive it is. Yeah, no, no surprise. That's where a lot of the expense goes. It's either R&D or marketing or legal expenses, right? Yep, Yep. that's very true. (laughs) It's one of those. And I tell people, under (laughs) R&D is not just so, when we talk about R&D, so like I sit under R&D. Regulatory affairs sits in R&D, but R&D is the engineering. It's the animal study. So it's the preclinical, it's the clinical trials we run. And it's bringing the products to market from a regulatory perspective. All of that sits under R&D and in the R&D budget. And I think R&D normally is one of the largest budgets in most pharma medical device companies. So now with you being abroad, would you say that you have had more opportunity then because you are outside of the U.S.? Would you say you have had more or less opportunity being outside of the United States? Probably more. I think because more U.S.-based companies are realizing that Well, I I always say a lot of these U.S.-based companies consider themselves global, but technically their mindset is U.S. and then the rest of the world. And I think that that has not served them. And so more and more companies are realizing they need true global perspective. So I I do get I mean, it's it's sad. I recently I had to like lock down my LinkedIn. So the only way you can find me on LinkedIn, well, you can find me on LinkedIn, but the only way you can send me a message or a request is if you know my personal email. Not even my professional email, because what was happening was is people were literally calling up J&J, calling the switchboard, 
They'd see Amsterdam, they'd see my name, and they'd Google Johnson & Johnson in Amsterdam, call the switchboard and have them transfer it to my phone or ask the receptionist for my email address because they wanted to send me an email. And I was getting anywhere from five to six headhunter conversations and requests a week. Now, most of them are things that I was actually overqualified for. A few were things like I would consider. It was becoming very consuming. So I would say that I think I've gotten more reaction abroad, especially because regulatory frameworks are changing a lot right now. So Europe has the new European medical device regulations, which we're in the transitional period now, which went into effect in 2017. Saudi has the new Saudi food and drug TFNA. In Russia, the cis countries, you have the new Eurasian Economic Union regulations. We're seeing more countries in Africa like Kenya, Uganda, Botswana, Tanzania that are becoming regulated. South Africa has a big regulatory change. So because I have experience working in those markets, I think it's made me more marketable or more desired than normal. And I always tell people regulatory was the best thing I ever, you know, the best advice I ever got was to get into regulatory because the supply and demand is really always in the employee's favor, especially if you're good at what you do. Right. Of course. Would you consider going back to the U.S. doing this? Do you think then you would be more value with your international experience back in the United States? Or do you plan on remaining abroad for your career? So it's about balance for me, right? So I've now been here. Uh, January, will be, January will be eight years um, I've been here. And it's it's been amazing. I love it. Everyone always asks me, like, why do I love living abroad? It's just the lifestyle. I get seven weeks of vacation. You know, people laugh at me that I'm in the office after six o'clock. You know, work-life balance is a thing. People take their holidays. I'll get one year paid maternity leave living here, which is something I won't get, you know, in the U.S. So for me, I don't think I will ever live in the U.S. on a full-time basis again. But I'm thinking in 2022, I'm hoping actually in 2022 to get pregnant and I will potentially start to split my time between the U.S. and Europe just because I have a support system in the U.S. But for me, it's also important for me to raise a global citizen. I want to raise a child that's culturally aware. So Mm -hmm. for me, I don't think I will ever not have a house abroad. Now, I'm not sure if it'll be Amsterdam, but I'm not I don't think I will ever have like a full time residence in the U.S. again. So you started to talk a little bit about your personal life. So I want to Talk about that a little bit more because it's actually something I don't really discuss much in my podcast about how living abroad has maybe impacted your personal life or love life. So what do you have to say about that? So I didn't have a love life in the Bay. I tell people this all the time. I didn't have a love life in the Bay. (laughs) I was 34 years old, working all the time. It just seemed like guys, you know, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't meeting the right guy, right? That has not changed. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that has not changed living in Amsterdam. Like I date, but I'm not, I don't have a Mr. Right right now. And honestly, I think I will find Mr. Right later in life. For me, I want to have a child. My biological clock is moving. I just turned 42 a few months ago. So I've made the choice that I'm going to try to go it alone. And when love finds me, it will find me. I don't rush it. I don't, you know, I'm not, I don't, I'm not desperate for it. I have really great friendships and and though I nurture those relationships and, you know, I'm, I'm very satisfied in that department. Like I said, I believe love will find me when it finds me. I, I, I have to keep reminding myself I'm on God's time, not my time. So like right. I go out on dates, but nothing serious. And I tell people, I'm like, look, if I'm taking my time to go out on a date with you, my, I feel like this time is more precious than money. Mm-hmm. So if I'm giving you my time, you better be worth it. 
Right. So, I mean, so <laughs> I my love you. life hasn't changed. Like I said, I wasn't really dating in the Bay. I think I just, I think I'm more, com- I've grown to be more comfortable in my skin and I've grown to be more comfortable with who I am. I'm, I'm a loud girl who likes to talk and laugh and cook and drink wine. And, and that's okay. My lid to my pot is going to come around and, and be okay with my crazy jokes, my need to cook <laughs> and be anal retentive about everything being in its place. And the fact that I talk too much and maybe a little bit too loud, they'll be okay with that when they come around. So if anything, really the difference is maybe that your dating options have become more diverse um, since you've been abroad um, or no? I, I, politically correct, I, I don't really date outside my race. Okay. And I don't really date, I, I will say this, I, I haven't found the Dutch to be super friendly with regards to dating. So I've dated other expats living here. I've dated people like in London and, but I've never, I haven't really ventured. Let me say I haven't ventured outside of my race since living here. It's just, especially because honestly, I moved here in, in the middle of like the Mike Brown, Trayvon Martin things. And it's just, I don't have the time nor the patience to educate you on why black people feel the way they feel. I had I, no black Dutchmen. I, I, you know what? And I tell people all the time, the Dutch are the OG colonizers and they, they don't understand race issues. And every December 5th, we have the same conversation about them dressing up in blackface and parading yeah. around the city. I yeah. don't have like, yeah. I will never forget the night, the Mike Brown. So, you know, I get CNN here. We get a lot of us channels here in the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I had a really, really hot neighbor. I had him over for dinner because I had a few people over for dinner, but he happened to be the only Caucasian Dutch guy. I had another friend who was here who was Dutch, who was black, a Canadian friend who was here who was black. But he happened to be the only Caucasian Dutch guy at my dinner. And, you know, people were talking and eating appetizers while I was cooking. And I had CNN just on in the background and they were portraying the protest in Missouri over Mike Brown's death. And he made some comments that made me go from, oh, he's so hot to, oh, he's so unaware. And then I realized, uh, I'm like, I, don't, I just don't have the patience. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's some things in right. life that I don't have the patience for, and you should educate yourself on it. And then, like I said, every December, we have these conversations about Zawartha Pete and the fact that Dutch people still, yeah. till this day, don't see anything wrong with dressing up in blackface and parading around and parading their children around in blackface during a Christmas holiday that's supposed to be you know, inclusive to everyone. So I think for me, I've I've probably consciously just not engaged as much with white men, Mm -hmm. given some of those experiences. Now, it's never saying that I won't date a white guy. I'm just saying I just subconsciously, I've never engaged. They don't engage me often. So it just is, it is what it is. But there are a lot of black Dutch people here. There are a lot Mm -hmm. of expats here. Um, I have a lot of expat friends here. And like I said, I travel a lot. So I've been to the Middle East a lot. I go to London a lot, you know. So, yeah. So dating, I will say my dating pool hasn't really expanded much. It just looks different from what it looked like in the Bay Area. All right. That's fair enough. So you've kind of given us a glimpse already of your next steps. But what is next for Dunjo Johnson? Oh, Lord. I'm going to settle into this new role. Once the world opens back up, you know, I'll be traveling again a little bit more, probably more to Asia because I do have a global role and Asia is is huge for us. I think what's next for me is I really want to try again for a baby. Hopefully Mm -hmm. I'll be successful. 
and that I'm contemplating buying a new place here in Amsterdam that's a little bit bigger. I'm also looking currently for a place in Washington, D.C., where I went to Howard University. I love D.C. I have a lot of friends there. I think that's where I will make my second home. So over the mm-hmm. next year, you know, and I'm looking forward to a vacation. I'm going champagne tasting soon. I'm taking a long weekend, Thanksgiving weekend, which isn't a holiday here. But since the U.S. is off, I'm like, ooh, I won't have to worry about a bunch of emails. So I'm going to take the long weekend and go to Champagne, France and do some champagne tasting. Right. Well, good. Any final words for my audience? Just take the plunge. If you want to move abroad, I always tell people this. The one thing that's good right now is a lot of countries have these entrepreneur visas. Like in the Netherlands, they have the DAF that stands for the Dutch American Friendship Treaty. And you can move here on a visa for two years as an entrepreneur. So a lot lot of people are also working remotely. Countries are opening up to say, you know, oh, you can come work here on a remote visa. Take the plunge, even if it's for six months to see if you like it while you're working abroad or working remotely. Nothing, your situation will never get better. It will never change if you don't change it. So if you really want to do it, what's stopping you? I still, I, 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 my standard of living is actually better than it was in the U.S. I will say it's still expensive. So people always say, well, Amsterdam is so expensive. I say expensive is relative. I moved from San Francisco. So the Bay Area was super right. expensive. I'm actually paying probably mm-hmm. three or four hundred a month less than what I was paying in the Bay Area. So, you know, mm-hmm. expensive is relative. There are more economical cities to live in in the Netherlands than Amsterdam. And I also live in Amsterdam city center, which is more expensive. But I chose that. And for me, it was still financially feasible. So you can find where you want to live. Medical people always ask me about health care. I have great doctors here. I have great dentists. The standard of health care is, is comparable to the U.S., except I won't go home broke. I broke my ankle in 2014 and had a cast, was seen in the emergency room, all of that. And I only had to pay like 125 euros. And I didn't even have health insurance at the time because I had forgot to register for the insurance. So even without health insurance, I only paid 125 euros to be seen in the emergency room. An orthopedic surgeon scans and a cast. And I paid 125 euros for that. So, you know, you don't have to go broke Quality of life is the same, except you really do get the opportunity. Like I can work as much as I want or as little as I want because work-life balance really does exist. People here, they work so that they can live. They don't live to work. Mm-hmm. And so when I go on my vacation, I, I just did 10 days in Greece. Nobody expected me to work. That was not an expectation that I would work because people don't do that. Right. So I, like yeah. I said, if you really want to try it, if you really want to do something else, and I'm not anti-patriotic, I'm not anti-American. That's not why I moved. And I still love, you know, mm-hmm. the U.S. I, I go home often. You know, I'm in the U.S. often for work and to see family and friends. I just needed a change of scenery. And if you feel like you need a change of scenery, if you feel like you've gone somewhere, you're like, you know what? I really love this place. I always tell people I equate it to like I moved from New Orleans to Washington, D.C. I moved from Washington, D.C. to California, California to Minnesota. So I just equate it to a change of scenery. It's like changing states. Right. I just moved to another country. Right. So Mm -hmm. if if you got the bug, don't be afraid. Take the leap. Great talking to you so much, Danielle. It's always great to talk to you. thank you so much for your wisdom. Okay. Thank you, Michelle. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Flipping the Script. If you like what you have heard, please make sure to subscribe to get notified of future episodes. Also, I would appreciate it if you would write a review and share with your friends. And... I want to hear from you. 
Feel free to drop me a line and let me know what you thought about this week's episode or to suggest any future topics that you would like for me to explore. Or you can just stop by and say hello. You can reach me at flippingthescript.com or on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Flippin' the Script. Want to continue the discussion? I also have a private group for ladies only on Facebook. I look forward to hearing from you. Bye for now. We're flipping the script so you'll find your way To help you embrace any trials you'll face